Welcome to NFT Challenge Talks, where we explore the people of Web3 and their impact on the future of technology. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Adam McBride, a pioneering NFT archaeologist who has rediscovered numerous historic projects dating from the early days of NFTs. In addition, Adam is an expert in online business strategy and the founder of Raw Botanicals and the host of his own highly successful podcast, The Adam McBride Show, which has been one of Apple Podcast's top charting podcasts in Costa Rica since 2019. Let's uncover more about Adam's history. So grab a banana, sit back and let's get started. And uh, today uh, we are here with uh, Adam, who is going to be one of these speakers joining us uh, in person in Tallinn. And uh, we'll be trying to get a little bit uh, uh, more information on who he is and uh, open the historical NFTs topic that will be delved much deeper uh, during the main event. So Adam, uh, give us a, a quick overview of uh, who you are and what did you do before a web free oh what what who are you uh it's a little challenging it's so funny like when i think about these kind of questions um how easy it was for my dad 30 years ago to explain what he was right he's an engineer he works at this company bam that's it right um i've had a bunch of careers um but basically i'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur I've started a, uh, a lot of businesses, uh, still have a, bit, a soap company here in Costa Rica. I live in Costa Rica. Uh, my wife now runs it. It's called Rob Botanicals. Um, but we've had a bunch of businesses here in Costa Rica. I've always been into tech. Uh, I've always been into kind of, you know, what we now social media, but this idea of how to communicate with people. I, I, was, I was doing YouTube videos back in like 2010. Um, and I've been doing podcasting for the last... Uh, gosh, like four or five years. Um, I started my podcasting originally uh, focusing on Costa Rica and business in Costa Rica. It was called the Costa Rican Experience. Uh, it was within six months, the number one podcast in Costa Rica. Crazy enough, because it was an English podcast in a Spanish speaking country. But what I've learned over the years is that niching or finding a niche um, is really, really important in business. And, and I was able to kind of grab this um, very small community of listeners, which are English speakers here in Costa Rica, um, and basically control the Costa Rican market in podcasting back in the day. And so that's how I got into podcasting. Um, I, I got into crypto in 2017 during the ICO boom. I tried to start a business back then, uh, totally failed, but kind of knew about the NFT projects, early NFT projects like punks and certainly knew about, um, you know, Crypto Kitties at the end of 2017, when that explosion took place, uh, I didn't get into the NFTs at the time, meaning I didn't buy any at that time. But when they started popping back up in tw late 2020, when I saw punks kind of selling for, you know, high dollar value, $20,000, something like that, I was like, whoa, it's cut. Wait, wait, wait. And so in early 2021, um, there was kind of this rebirth of what, what we now call historical NFTs. Back then, we just called them kind of old NFTs. And there was one week when a bunch of projects were rediscovered, and that week completely changed my life. Like, I just completely sh shifted focus in my life um, and just went on this rabbit hole hunt for old NFT projects. I just, I, my life became consumed with being a treasure hunter. And I spent the next six months kind of finding old projects, helping bringing them forward, and you know, help, helping to build this space, which is now historical NFTs, uh, which has kind of become almost you know, mainstream in the NFT community. Uh, certainly wasn't, it wasn't mainstream in, in mid-2021, but you know, to play a part in that kind of growth of a space and the way people feel about the old project um, has been real rewarding and, and you know, just an amazing part of my life. That's awesome. And uh, I very much remember when uh, CryptoKitties uh, were initially introduced and uh, how I also didn't uh, get deep into uh, that until like uh, late 2020s, uh, early 2021s, and uh, roughly the same time as you are. And then uh, just like six months later, 
I was at some event and uh, a, a very nice girl said that, oh yeah, I'm into historical NFTs. I was like, isn't it just like six months or like actual boom? And uh, okay, well, it must have been just looking at uh, CryptoKitties and uh, those things from the back day, but it sounded weird. And then uh, one year later, here we are, everyone's talking about it. It kind of seems yeah, it, it, it is really, it's it's amazing um, because like, I'll be the first to say like, wow, I mean, the oldest of these are basically 11 years old. How can it be historical or whatever? We just kind of landed on that word, historical NFTs. Uh, I, I think maybe even a better word is just old NFTs, right? Um, and really, it's based on this concept that we're moving into a Web3 world where NFTs are going to be kind of un- ubiquitous, just kind of laid over the foundational layer of Web3. Um, and we don't know where that's going to go, but we do, you know, those of us who are believers in Web3, I think probably everybody in this space is a believer in Web3. Um, we just look at it and we say, well, what were the first instances? Why did they do that back then? Right. And you realize that in, you know, in 2017, there were, I don't know, we don't, not even sure, but maybe 23 projects, you know, in 2016, there were, you know, eight, you know, 2015, there were less, less, and it just gets less and less. Um, and so you realize that, oh, well, these were like the kind of uh, foundational layers of the modern NFT. And so, um, you know, diving in and researching that history, it just becomes, it's exciting, right? You just realize there's this super scarce number of them, which happened in these kind of like early years from 2011 forward. And from a collectible standpoint, they become very interesting. And as Web3 explodes and NFTs explode and the the kind of, peer-to-peer networks that we're talking about building kind of grow and explode. Um, I think people are going to look back and say, wow, what were the first ones? And there aren't many, uh, which are the unique ones that I want to own. And even more than that, the number of collectors I feel is going to be huge because if everybody in the world holds NFTs, they become the most collectible items on earth. Um, it's different than like a baseball card because only a small fraction of our society, you know, likes baseball and wants to hold baseball <laughs> cards, a very, very small fraction. But when everybody holds NFTs, um, it just becomes extremely collectible in my view. Yeah, very much, uh, very much so. And so uh, even these days, I'm uh, not even looking at the the very old projects, but looking at those projects from the, uh, early 2021 and already thinking that uh, when will those be rediscovered as uh, old or slash historical NFTs and uh, keeping my eye on on some uh, interesting things. I think uh, lots of fun uh, coming from that side soon. It's funny because we've had this discussion uh, in our community and it's been, I would say, more than a discussion, often, you know, battles, people battling about this, uh, that it's not historical. And, you know, I, I, I agree. Something from last year or two years ago isn't historical. But, I mean, we're considering historical from, you know, 2017 or 2016, right? But I, 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 the only caution I have with that and people aping in is that um, you need to understand the exponential curve that has already occurred, right? That really occurred with the birth of CryptoKitties. And that's why CryptoKitties are kind of so critical in the timeline of NFTs is that once CryptoKitties launched and was just really hyper successful within the Ethereum ecosystem is that you got all these developers coming in in 2018 and building their own projects. And it really created this like literally exponential curve in 2018 and then forward to 2021, where in 2021 you had, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand uh, smart contract NFT projects launched, right? So, and this year, I don't even know, you know, a million, a billion, like how many, right? So it becomes very, very difficult for the average person, anybody, myself, who, you know, I guess would be considered an expert in the space to try and figure out which one of those will have value. Is, is almost impossible, almost impossible. So, you know, you can take your risk, you can grab ones, but just, you know, um, I, I'd say just be, be, be frugal and cautious because the odds of you picking the right one are just really, really hard. Um, when you get to that level of the exponential curve, it just becomes very hard to pick which one of the 200,000 is going to be the one. Uh, th- that becomes really, really difficult. 
Yeah. Uh, it was funny when last year uh, our main keynote, uh, William Hendrick, and the lead author for ERC721, who's rejoining us this year, he was saying when, uh, when they had the initial uh, ERC721 and uh, CryptoKitties uh, launch party uh, and everyone in the room were thinking how to do the next crypto docs and crypto uh, ducks and whatever other projects. And here we are now with uh, uh, tens, if not hundreds of projects starting uh, every day. Yeah, it's, I, I, we've had William on the shows, on various shows many times. Um, and if you all don't know, William was the uh, developer behind Sue Square. So this is kind of the first implementation of the fully uh, developed ERC721 uh, contract code. And um, yeah, he's a great guy to talk to. And just to understand this kind of like the evolution of the 721. And for a lot of historians, they use Sue Squares as kind of like this delineation point where it's like everything, you know, pre-Sue Squares is historical. Everything after is modern NFT. And there's a lot to be said about that. And, um, you know, uh, we'll debate that probably for the end of time as to what these cutoff dates mean or whatever. But um, yeah, the development of the 721 is, you know, the most important step in birth of NFTs. I mean, it, it's the one where it allowed for this explosion of growth. And, um, you know, the team at Dapper Labs who, who built CryptoKitties originally and, and kind of proposed the 721, even came up with the name NFT for good or bad. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to you know, for all the love that crypto, I should say all the love that crypto punks gets is this like, you know, groundbreaking project. Um, pretty much the most uh, important NFT project ever was CryptoKitties. Um, it's hard to find value in projects that have, you know, decamillion uh, NFTs. Um, so, so CryptoKitties tends not to give that, get that much love. Um, but from a, from just like a historical perspective, uh, the top tier is CryptoKitties. Yeah, there are some other uh, notable names, uh, but CryptoKitties very much uh, was the thing that brought uh, the first uh, masses in and then uh, other uh, big projects uh, started coming afterwards. And it's, uh, I think it's uh, super important uh, when we're talking about the beginning of NFTs to mention uh, one of the listeners today, uh, JP Jensen and uh, Olga, uh, so, Adam, uh, do you want to share what is Olga? Well, JP, uh, he's a great follow, so I'd recommend anybody listening uh, follow JP. Um, true expert in the space uh, as far as being – he was super early and created a bunch of different projects on Counterparty that kind of explored this idea of – obviously, he has his Olga, which is a one-of-one, one, and so – this idea, if you think back to this time, people weren't thinking necessarily about it as individual unique pieces of art, and which is kind of the way we think of the modern NFT as like this one of one, right? Um, and he was like one of the first guys to think about it that way. And from that perspective, you know, JP's place in history is, uh, is solid in NFT history because he, he thought outside of the box. And did something in a little bit different way. He was playing around not only with his one of one of Olga, but, you know, books and ownership of, you know, he created a, a, a book about Bitcoin and sold fractional shares. And you were going to get portions of this, each of those hundred, you know, NFTs were going to be, um, you were going to receive royalties in the shares. And like, so exploring these ideas, which were kind of, um, you know, still haven't played out in the NFT space. I mean, we're still kind of debating, like, what does it mean, the NFT? Can it be ownership in a company? They, all these kind of early ideas, JP played around with those. And um, yeah, and so Olga is one of them where he did a one of one. Um, and so that, that kind of sits as this, you know, beacon in history of, of like, oh, this is what this can be. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to even... You know, you just can't really compare it to others because it's just one of these these kind of early examples of exploratory um, thinking. And I encourage people in the space now who are building to keep doing that sort of thinking. Um, I mean, we saw it kind of with the ordinals this week where everybody just immediately did exactly the same thing that everybody already did on Ethereum, right? Which <laughs> is like 
mint the board apes again, or I don't know, mint the punks again. And that's fine. But there are other things like, what does this new technology do that can be different than what we did on Ethereum? You know? And I had one guy on, on a Twitter space who was like, actually, what we did was we did a hundred piece project and we spent the, those ordinals. We spent them as like, we bought something with it, or I don't know what he did, just gave them out. And they're just going to watch those ordinals kind of move around uh, the Bitcoin blockchain as, as Satoshi's and going to revisit it in 10 years. Like, where are they now? Right. And those, you know, stuff like that, which is like, oh, wow, that's interesting, you know? Um, and so just to wrap it back to JP, that's what kind of JP was doing early. And, um, yeah, JP's, JP's the man. Yeah. Uh, talking about NFTs, then as NFTs are not just about, uh, art and not just about, uh, any other medium, but, uh, starting from the uh, initial uh, papers, they were looked to also be used within uh, supply chain as for, uh, licensing and uh, various other uh, use cases. Then when it comes to the historical NFTs, uh, are you primarily looking at uh, all of this through the uh, art lens or also on the other use cases lens? Yeah, I'm, de you're def I'm definitely looking at it from the varying, different varying use cases. So, you know, I think the first use cases actually for NFTs were this idea of, of identification, ID systems. And so we saw a name coin, you know, where you could basically create URLs with names. Okay. And people were thinking, okay, this can be like a naming system. And we see that even today come forward with ENS, right. And what ENS did has, is doing, and you're seeing it with like the dot ETC addresses, right. This idea of like identity um, is still very much being figured out. Um, on blockchains and in our social lives, so on social media. So ID is kind of one of this early, early ideas of how NFTs could be used. Obviously, then the artist came in, and so you do get this art almost immediately in 2021, or sorry, 2011, with puny codes where people started putting like what could be considered art in those little URLs. Like how can I push a little piece of art in there or an emoji in there or something funny in there? You know, so you get these early experiments, right? Then we get some, some gaming aspects, right? When it comes over to Counterparty, you get Spells of Genesis, right? Kind of a gaming aspect. And that's like another aspect, another layer um, in the history. And then, of course, you get the memes come in with Rare Pepe's, right? So you get this kind of like evolution and growth. And, and then we get, um, you know, we get CryptoPunks, which although they weren't released as like a PFP collection, people began to use almost immediately as PFPs. And so it's funny, but we get back to like identification and ID and with kind of in the 2021 bull run where people use their crypto punks as a social ID. And then they begin using their ENS name as another ID system. And so you get this weird mix where it's like, holy cow, have we figured out the ID system? Which is basically... PFPs and Ethereum, you know, ENS names. Um, I don't know. But that's where we kind of got to. If you look at the evolution of NFTs, that's kind of this weird haphazard uh, evolution from what they were first thinking about it with like the ID systems to what we kind of got during the 2021 bull run, which was like FPs. And then we got, you know, ENS names. Um, so you get this evolution and it's, it's, Incredible. And, and, you know, where it goes from here, uh, who knows? I think it'll probably focus for a while on, on these kind of best use cases. Um, but where it grows and evolves to, you know, I don't think anybody can fully appreciate where that's going to go because none of us know. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to myself, then I, uh, I always knew NFTs were there, but I actually only got interested when we were starting to build a uh, supply chain uh, solution ourselves and we saw that uh, NFTs would be a, a way how to uh, share information between uh, different parties that don't have the same uh, databases linked uh, and considering this and now considering uh, the historical use cases uh, you are primarily uh, focusing on the um, ID side through uh, the 
uh, like Namecoin and the uh, PFPs and other uh, use cases. But uh, have you seen uh, any like real world uh, things uh, uh, such as tokenizing a physical asset uh, or uh, selling, uh, let's say, event tickets or anything else uh, in this uh, historical uh, pre-ERC721 world as well? Or uh, these are some use cases that uh, only actually started coming once the standard was already set. Yeah, I think I think it was more about um, standard kind of and um, just well, just getting just getting adoption is so hard, right? Uh, I'll give an example: um, Christian Moss, who built uh, a game called Saratobi Island, early um, NFT project as it was part of a game. So he did this interoperable game where you could bring in your Spells of Genesis um, NFTs into his game, and those, those would trigger basically in-game items and, and power-ups and stuff. Uh, he got zero adoption back then, right? Because there's the number of people who were interested in that was super lo- like nobody, right? He's just way too early. Um, and he also did this other game at the time, which basically was like Pokemon Go, but for Bitcoin. You could drop Bitcoin basically anywhere in the world. He was living in Japan at the time, and you could drop Bitcoin. They and they literally did like drop Bitcoin all over Japan to have people run around and pick up Bitcoin. Again, he couldn't even get people to go pick up Bitcoin back then. It was like, ah, eh, who cares, right? Um, but I was at the uh, historic NFT fest in Barcelona this last year. And he's re-released this game, um, which allows you to drop NFTs. Kind of, he did it. Uh, we were in Barcelona. He did it all over, you know, Barcelona, and we're running around, you know, trying to pick up NFTs. It's the market's ready for it now, right? And so, so much of it is the tech all has to be right. The tech stack has to be right. The market has to be right. Um, you know, it's just. There's so much to get right, and it's really hard. And from a business perspective, I appreciate how really difficult it is to get right. It's almost, it, you know, it's almost a miracle when it does kind of happen. And um, so I haven't seen that many great use cases of, of you know, like digital items and that sort of stuff. There's some like T-shirts and that sort of stuff, but I haven't seen like the one that's really popped off yet. Um, not to say it won't, you know, I'm sure it will. It's just like, but you, you you're gonna know it when you see it. Right. It's like it's the tech, it's the marketing, it's everything kind of occurring at the right time to into the right market. And again, that, then it'll kind of just work. Um, but I really haven't seen it so far. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if you've seen it, let me know. But I haven't really seen one that kind of gained mainstream, you know, that, that you know, you heard about on the TV because, you know, it, it kind of popped through to mainstream, you know, kind of understanding. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, these things are still uh, still to become, and uh, many of them uh, need for us to introduce uh, uh, much more people uh, into the ecosystem. Uh, we're talking about just uh, a few million users these days, and most uh, uh, use cases wouldn't work until we have at least hundreds of millions of uh, users. And that's where... I think it's super important for us to keep on playing with those uh, ideas on what can be potentially built on uh, uh, NFT standards, uh, on other blockchain uh, protocols. Uh, But at the same time, it's also super important for us to look into how to simplify onboarding and simplify uh, the usage uh, of uh, uh, this technology. Oh my God, like a, a million, like the tech has to get so much better. Like so much better, right? I mean, the idea of anybody like downloading wallets and, you know, exchanging token, like it just, it has to get a million times easier, right? Anybody in this space right now has probably um, gone through barriers, barriers of entry with which the average person just simply will not do, simply won't. And I mean, honestly, the ordinals thing this week just gave, gave you a kind of heads up into people's mindset. Even in our space, which is NFTs and people, you know, buying and selling NFTs, in that space, how many people were willing to go learn the 10 minutes of information it would take to go get a Bitcoin wallet, you know, to mint an ordinal? Like nobody, 
like very, very, I'm not saying nobody, but very, very few people are willing to do that, even from a highly motivated group of people like, you know, NFT DNs, right? So, um, yeah, the tech has to get way, 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 way easier to, to really make an impact in the society, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so that's actually a good part to look deeper into what you do with Emblem Vault. So previously, you have been uh, mentioning uh, it uh, briefly, but uh, can you give us a overview of what Emblem Vault is and uh, what do you expect to do with it uh, over the next uh, five, ten, or many more years? Sure. Yeah, so basically Emblem Vault is a tech stack um, that enables cross-blockchain trading. And it's not a bridge. There's no bridging at all. Um, if you think of a bridge, for anybody who doesn't really know, it's basically if I was to bridge a CryptoPunk over to Solana, for example, basically the way they create those bridges is you would lock up the, the NFT on Ethereum and then they would remint or mint a new one on Solana. Okay. For Providence, you can see how terrible that is. It's literally who would do that with a CryptoPunk because everybody recognizes that you're minting a brand new CryptoPunk on Solana. Like, what is that worth? You know? Um, so it, we're not a bridge just to let you know, because a lot of people think we're a bridge. We're not a bridge. All we do. So in that exact same example, all we do is we basically um, lock the private keys for that CryptoPunk and would then basically mint a brand new NFT on Solana, which allows trading of that uh, private key on Solana. But the CryptoPunk never leaves the Ethereum blockchain. So when somebody wants to unlock that vault on Solana, they unlock it and they receive the private keys for that CryptoPunk on Ethereum. So uh, in the case of the ordinals, you're basically locking up that ordinal on the Bitcoin blockchain. You can trade it on Ethereum, you know, using regular 721 nfts and when the the font when somebody's like actually you know what i want to have it back on bitcoin they unlock the vault and they literally get the private keys and they can just paste those private keys into a bitcoin wallet and they own the the ordinal again so what we are trying to do what we're doing actually is is facilitating block cross blockchain so people on different blockchains can find where the liquidity is right now and right now 98% of all liquidity in NFTs is on Ethereum. So basically, people are locking these NFTs from different blockchains into 721s and listing them for sale on OpenSea and selling them on OpenSea. And, you know, when they want it back in the private, on the, you know, native chain, they just unlock the vault. And when they unlock the vault, they get the private keys and, and that's it. So it's, it's a relatively simple concept. Uh, the tech is, is super detailed and hard. Uh, but so that's, that's kind of our proprietary technology. And, you know, we're psyched to kind of build tools and make it easier for people to do this and, and get better all the time to try and make it, you know, as seamlessly as possible. Because the, the real vision is trading NFTs and not it, it just being this really easy movement of NFTs across blockchain, creating that provenance layer, though, where the NFT actually never leaves the blockchain. So it's never a bridge. It's whatever chain the nft is on it stays there and we just allow trading of basically the private keys quick banana break i'd like to take a moment to tell you about an event i'm organizing nft tallinn the biggest web free event in northern and eastern europe nft tallinn is your bridge to europe where the brightest minds in the industry come together to discuss and present the latest trends and developments in a nascent web free world the main event will be held from May 8th to 10th and will feature keynote speakers, panel discussions, networking opportunities, VIP dinners, and more. In addition, the community will host hackathons, side events, and much more throughout the week starting May 5th. Tickets are available now. To learn more and secure your ticket, visit nfttalent.com. It's an event well worth your time. When it comes to other solutions out there, then uh, I understand uh, there has been lots of hype about uh, layer zero and uh, some specific NFT collections uh, using this as a bridge-like feature, how to uh, enable uh, the creation of uh, NFTs on other chains as well. Uh, so when it, uh, 
when you would be comparing to uh, to them, then uh, other than Emden Vault not being a bridge, uh, is there any other uh, use case difference uh, compared to that? Yeah, so as far as my understanding goes, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as my understanding, so so for example, like, um, I don't know, there's Pudgy Peng, somebody, some, you know, NFT project, you know, allows, base, is using this service to enable your penguin to just, you know, if you watch that video, you slide down to the other blockchain, right? It's like, oh, you just slide over. But anybody who knows blockchains knows that that doesn't exist. Like, you can't take an NFT from Ethereum and just magically put it on, uh, I don't know, flow blockchain. You just, you can't, it doesn't, it literally doesn't exist. Uh, you can lock the NFT on Ethereum, you know, you can burn the NFT on Ethereum, but even when you're burning it, you're not, you're not destroying the NFT. You're just sending it to an address where nobody has control of it. Right. So, you know, we're of the belief that this, the collectors are not going to value these NFTs highly. So that said, there may, I'm not saying there aren't use cases for it. For example, I'm Starbucks, right? And I want to create a rewards program where these NFTs can live on any blockchain because I want to be able to access, you know, collectors on any blockchain. That is a perfect use case for that type of solution where I can literally move it from Ethereum to Solana to Tezos. That's perfect because these are basically low value NFTs where the provenance of those NFTs literally doesn't matter. You just want to be able to trade that item on any blockchain. Totally makes sense. Does it make sense? All, when, I, when people are like, well, wh- wouldn't this make sense for regular NFTs? I'm like, think about that from a perspective of a crypto punk. Would you ever do that with a crypto punk? What would it do to the value of that crypto punk? It would destroy the value. I mean, it doesn't. So from like a collector standpoint, a high value NFT standpoint, um, that type of system does not make any sense to me. Um, and I think, you know, collectors have already decided that that doesn't make any sense. Um, but that may change. You know, I could be wrong. Maybe new NFTs that come up, um, you know, maybe that's the way forward. But it seems to me like if that happens, what you're going to be talking about is kind of more like low value NFTs or these kind of NFTs like I'm talking about where we have a layer of NFTs across our entire society um, where they're just kind of ubiquitous and they kind of live, but these aren't like the high value collectible NFTs that I'm talking about. Yeah. And so we've been recently uh, looking at uh, all of this technology ourselves as uh, or other businesses uh, building uh, web free games and uh, we're just in the process of uh, migrating uh, one uh, solution uh, onto uh, a Polygon and Ethereum ecosystem from a not so well-known blockchain called Icon. And in this process, uh, we're also looking to enable the either bridging or just like cross-chain trading. And uh, that's exactly where I'm now uh, eager to uh, start having a different level of conversation with you, Adam. I mean, look, from a gaming perspective, uh, it makes total sense, right? If you have like an in-game token or in-game currency, uh, you want that to kind of live freely over all blockchains, right? And so the ability to almost create that when you actually create it to make it natively native to all blockchains makes total sense. Where you have this like, um, you know, bridging mechanism where it can be moved all over the place seamlessly and inexpensively, like... That's a use case I totally get, 100%. Um, it's just different than kind of like high-value NFTs or art, right? Art NFTs or um, that sort of thing. It's just a different use case. Just so uh, I, I would understand it better, when you are uh, locking those uh, NFTs uh, in the vault and uh, generating them on the other uh, blockchains, then... Uh, are you somehow making sure that uh, the NFTs on the other blockchains may be a part of uh, one collection would still be uh, a part of one collection or would they be all uh, just uh, separate? So just, to under, just so you understand more, more specifically, let, let's take a, a perfect example. Okay, a Nakamoto Pepe on Counterparty. Everybody knows them on Nakamoto Pepe. Okay. Um, what it does is you'll and say you want to sell that Nakamoto Pepe on OpenSea, okay? So you'll go to the Emblem Vault site 
and you'll create a vault for that, which is basically a 721 NFT. When you create that vault, um, it actually generates addresses. And one of those addresses is going to be a counterparty address. And what's going to happen is you're then going to send that Nakamoto to that address. So you're basically, when the NFT is created, our 721 is created, um, it creates that address and creates the private key for that address. So you don't know it, right? And it, upon generation, nobody knows that private key. So when you send in that Nakamoto, um, it's locked in the vault. So once you send it there, nobody can access it, right? You can't, you can't access it. You can't access the private keys. You can't take anything out of that 721 vault. The only thing you can do is that you now own that vault and you can buy, sell, and trade that vault. So if that makes sense. So once it's in there, like you could send more stuff. You could send, uh, you could send two Nakamoto Pepe's and you could send a bunch of Bitcoin and you could send a bunch of Ethereum. You can always send more stuff into that vault, um, but you can't actually uh, do anything like with the right. So sell it and see. So at the core, that's kind of what the technology is. Does that make sense? I know it's some, it can be complicated and maybe I'm not the best at describing it, but does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, very much. Cool. Yeah. So, so basically what it is, is that vault um, is kind of locks the private keys. And, and so unlocking the vault um, enables you to basically access those private keys. And then you could retrieve your Nakamoto Pepe and you could transfer it to other wallets or whatever you want to do, but that's all basically on counterparty, right? So it, it never, it would never leave a collection. You know, it's never going to leave the rare Pepe collection. It doesn't actually do anything to the native NFT. It, it literally, you're just simply sending it to a new address, but it literally does nothing uh, to the NFT itself. It doesn't change it. It doesn't mute, mutate it. It literally does nothing. You're simply sending it to a new address that you don't control but the vault that you've created trolls. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, we have lots of, we have lots of explainer videos cause it is, it's funny. It, it's relatively simple idea, but for people who aren't kind of native to NFTs, trust me, I've spent the week explaining this like 20 times, even to native NFT people, cause they don't quite understand how you can create a new wallet without actually knowing the seed phrase and stuff. And so that's a little bit complicated to explain, but. Happy to help. <laughs> no, it's it's very clear, uh, and I hope that uh, listeners uh, now have a little bit better understanding on that as well. Other than Emblem Vault and the daily uh, historical NFTs, uh, what are you most excited when it comes to the uh, Web three uh, in general, and uh, what do you expect of the future to? be like or what you hope it to become like Ooh, that's a tough one man I, you know I, I try to tell people like i don't know i, I have no idea um because I, I i you know was raised during the the time of the burnet right and so i've seen how this plays out where even in your wildest dreams you can't really imagine what's going to happen like just the idea that I'd be talking with you and you're in Europe right now and I'm in Costa Rica right now and we're having, we have a show on a platform with a bunch of people in the room and they can all talk too. And like, you can't, I mean, we take this for, no, for normal, but this was not, well, nobody thought this was going to happen in 1990, right? So I look at, I look at Web3 very much the same way. Um, and that's why I encourage people to really experiment and try stuff um, because we get to actually build what it's going to be. And whether it's, you know, decentralized platforms, um, whether it's individuals who kind of control their own social networks and the social networks, you get paid through token systems. Like, who knows? I mean, they're good ideas like that. Uh, I mean, we, we had I've had Adam Levine on the show a bunch of times and Adam Levine created, you know, the, from Let's Talk Bitcoin fame, you know, basically created a token gated social network back in 2016 called Tokenly. And you could post blog posts and you could post podcasts and stuff and you would get rewarded in, the, in their native token, right? And he actually like sold that as a business in like 2018. And it's like, wow, 
why doesn't that exist right now? Right. And it's like, well, the tech isn't right there. And, you know, it's like we need to move into these, you know, new systems and new paradigms. But all this kind of stuff has to line up and stuff has to be right. And it has to be the right time and the people have to be ready to accept it. And so I'm not sure where we all go. um, But I am very much excited about this this idea of peer to peer exchange and trading and, you know, the future that's possible through Web3 technologies where individuals have the freedom to kind of live the life they want to lead. Um, you know, how could you not be excited about that? And I think we are moving in that direction. Um, just from my own perspective, you know, I'm 50 now. I've had, you know, I don't know, 40 jobs in my lifetime. My dad had two jobs in his lifetime, right? My kid will probably have 150 jobs in his lifetime. Like, I don't know where this is going. Um, it's a scary to a lot of people because they feel, well, that's who wants that. But the reality is, is that we get to build a future where we get to do what we want. Right. And choosing that for a lot of people is scary and terrifying. I know for myself, it's hard to figure out what exactly I want, but we have that opportunity now. And how much of a gift is that? You know, if I had talked to my great grandfather in 1945, you know, if he had a choice in his life, he most certainly did not have choices. He was forced to do stuff. There were not options. And we live in a world now of almost infinite options, which can be terrifying and, and really stressful. But the reality is, is that's pretty amazing too. And I'm just psyched about that. Like Web3 just enhances that. And uh, I, think that's, I think that's amazing. Yeah. When it comes to Web3, then uh, people often think that it's uh, it's about the new technology uh, and it's about new use cases but uh, if we look at it to the core then most of the use cases have been happening before and uh, most of it uh, has to a certain extent been possible without the blockchains as well but it's just becoming more fluid uh, in a way uh, and uh, over time once we get the infrastructure there and uh, uh, wallets and everything else much more user friendly then uh, i think that's when internet is going to be uh, the the best it can be yeah I, I would echo that yeah I, I would echo that and and a simple one for me to point out to people is like you know id systems right uh 2011 literally satoshi himself talked about id systems right on top of bitcoin and guys started namecoin they forked bitcoin they did it. Nobody was ready for it in 2011. But in 2021, we were. And ENS took off, right? Um, you know, so there are these systems, but sometimes it takes a decade to kind of, you know, get right or more for it to just kind of line up in the right way where, you know, the tech meets the social, meets the business, meets who knows what. And, uh, you know, and you get it just to kind of click into place. And I think we're almost doing the same sort of thing now with like these decentralized social networks. Um, you know, that's happened kind of over the last couple, couple of months where these decentralized networks have come up again and whether or not it's the right time for them, I don't know, but do I can in a decentralized YouTube in the future? Like, absolutely. I can do. I think it's going to happen like this month. Probably not. Right. But can I see it happening in the future where you actually own your content and the number of people who watch it, you get paid and it, you can have advertising, you can have all this sort of stuff through a consensus mechanism and tokens. Like, yeah, I could totally see that happening uh, when or, or if it happens, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I encourage somebody to build it out there. And most likely many different teams already are building it. When it comes to NFT talent, then uh, we're looking forward to having you uh, join us uh, in multiple different levels. Uh, first of all, much deeper into what is uh, historical NFT and how it's uh, evolved, as well as uh, like actual workshops on uh, uh, how to go and uh, how to really understand this market. And then, uh, of course, the uh, panel discussions on uh, uh, what can we do to uh, bring the next billion people uh, to the ecosystem. So I'm psyched to uh, have you join us uh, with us uh, in May and uh, looking forward to 
what can happen uh, after that in the next five, ten, and many more years. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to come over there and and uh, and and talk with all the people at the at the at the event. And uh, a lot of them have heard of historical entities, but kind of open some generalized and then go a bit deeper. And I might have one surprise for some of the uh, some of the people at the event, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, so I'll, I'll just leave that out there. Uh, maybe maybe I'll, I'll tease a little bit more in the in the coming month month. Um, but I got I got something pretty interesting, which I think is going to be a giveaway for for some people there uh, who might be very fortunate. Looking forward to that. And on that note, uh, we're opening the line for questions. Uh, and if there's, of course, uh, no questions right away, then I'll continue from my end. So if you want to ask a question, just uh, request uh, the speaking role and, uh, which, and we'll have you uh, join. Alex. Would you want to ask a question from Adam about historical NFTs or anything else fun? Mm. Adam, uh, I could only participate in half an hour of uh, your conversation with Sander. Everything I heard was uh, very, very, very exciting. So I will definitely review this recording when it will become available. So, no particular questions, but uh, the stuff you were describing about uh, the vault creation, this is something completely new for me, and uh, I would appreciate some video on this subject. Yeah, we have um, on our, if you go to YouTube and you just punch in uh, Emblem Vault, uh, or just visit Emblem Vault on our, uh, our Twitter has a, a LinkedIn there with all the different, um, you know, medium articles. We've done tons of how to's, you know, how to vault, you know, assets from basically every uh, blockchain out there, how to vault assets, how to, how to take assets out of vaults and return them to their native chain. Um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We have, we have tons of how to's. I actually, I've spent the better part of the last week just doing how to's for ordinals. Um, you know, so much of it is just, trying to educate people, right? And try to, because it is, it is tech, right? And it's, it's not always easy for people. And so just trying to kind of keep people safe for first and foremost, so people don't get scammed. I mean, that's, that's the main, our main focus has been kind of over the last week and, and just always trying to get better at it. And, um, but I'm always here. My DMs are always open. So if you guys have any questions, always happy to help. Yeah. Thank you very much because, uh, this is, uh, partly my job to educate, uh, uh, muggles around Estonia, so something new again, and uh, can't wait to. It's it's never-ending work, right, my friend? It's it's never-ending, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Seem to have another friend here with uh, Mooncat, uh, one of my uh, favorites. I would call it historical project, or at least a old NFT project. <laughs> oh, it's historical. We love the Mooncats. So, Lasagna Fund, uh, do you want to ask a question? Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for all the work you guys do. Uh, Adam, I really like following uh, some of the stuff you cover. It's been uh, really cool to see some uh, some interest in the history of the space because it is uh, definitely as deep as it is wide. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess I have a, a couple. No doubt about that, my friend. No doubt about that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I got. I, I'm a little confused, I guess, about Emblem. I'm kind of. I know you elaborated earlier, and there's probably some articles I can read about it. But uh, could you explain a little more about the the private key? I guess, uh, like how, how that is managed, and like, like is it sitting on an Emblem server, or is it hidden in like a contract? Like, are you doing some zero knowledge stuff? Like. Uh, I'm just kind of curious how, how uh, the, the releasing of an emblem vault uh, kind of works. Yeah, I mean, to be, to be completely transparent, I, I don't know the full like tech stack of how exactly it's, uh, it's the creation I know comes from like multiple different sources. And so it's like, it's a decentralized creation process. And when it's, when it's cracked when the, or unlocked, when the is actually unlocked, um, 
nobody within emblem actually like gets that that um yield the passwords or the the seed phrase um so it's only revealed to the wallet address that actually owns that vault um and once it's once it's revealed the vault itself gets sent to the burn address um that's to prevent basically double spends or the vault getting sold again on OpenSea. um so it's look i mean at that core it's a it's a it's a centralized proprietary tech stack so this is not like a decentralized product um so you know all the details i don't think we're ever going to reveal all the details because it's it's security you know for security reasons we can't reveal all the details um but so does that answer your question? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that definitely covers to some way. degree yeah. without giving away all the details. Yeah, I understand. There's definitely going to be a little bit of uh, you know uh, how the sausage is made a bit, uh, and yeah, for security purposes too. I, yeah, to make sure you know everything is secure. For sure. I mean, look, what I tell people, people will say, "Well, you know, how can I trust it?" And I'm like, I don't encourage you to necessarily trust it. It's a centralized service in the same way that Coinbase is a centralized service, right? Um, so would I recommend that you have a Nakamoto Pepe and you keep it in an emblem vault for all time? No, I would I would encourage you to uh, get a rare Pepe wallet, have that wallet stored on a ledger um, and store your counterparty asset on that ledger, right? Like that's, I, I'm a believer in self-custody, right? Um, but that said, I know that a lot of people simply don't have the technical understanding to even do something that I consider relatively simple like that. Right. Uh, and so, and so there are degrees of what people can do. Um, and, and kind of each person has to make that individual choice for themselves. So for example, I'll give you an example on like a current, uh, thing, which was the ordinals, right. Uh, ordinals going off and, and people are DMing me, well, how do I get it back? I want to have it on, on Bitcoin. And I'm like, okay, but they don't, they've never had a Bitcoin wallet. They don't know how to do, you know, it's like how much it's probably better for that person because they're looking to sell this item within the next two months of just leaving it in the emblem vault because the risk of emblem vault being hacked them losing their asset is probably a lot less than them learning the entire Bitcoin stack, you know, d downloading a Bitcoin food, running the ordinals wallet on the node and, you know, access that way and then sending it to a new address. You know, it's just kind of have to, my view currently is that you kind of have to meet people where they are um, and and everybody has to make their own decisions at the end of the day. I definitely encourage people to be self-sovereign and hold their items in their own wallets for long-term storage, 100%. But even within that, people have to be kind of aware of like the risks of even that if you know what I'm saying. So um, there's no perfect solution for an individual, but I try to produce and we try to produce kind of informational products so that people can make the best choices like for them and where they are at that particular you know, point in their life. Does that make, does that make sense? I've rambled a bit there. No, no, that's, that's good. And like uh, the way I've always kind of viewed it is like, yeah, we, we, with this thing, we're definitely able to, you know, have a trustless system, but there are certain, there are things that still require trust. And, you know, like uh, I, I'm sure lots of people in the space who are, have strong philosophy are, you know, against middlemen, but uh, I, I like to think that this technology enables us to choose better middlemen. Like we, we were able to really, uh, um, yeah, put our money where our mouth is and vote, vote with our wallet to really decide, you know, who we have trust in and we're able to remove the trust at any moment. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I love that, that, uh, that analogy because it's really, it's really true. Like, um, you know, it's, it's funny because the ordinals were so kind of crazy and most of the trading was taking place. OTC, right? And so if people don't know, that's basically, I want to sell to you, you want to buy from me, and somebody else kind of organizes the sale. And then I send it to that guy, you send the money to the guy, and then the guy, you know, flip flops the money to me and the, the NFT to you. And it's like, okay, you can trust that. Like, and if the guy in the middle is, you know, perfect, then you're good, you're golden, you know, or do you want to send it to an emblem vault and then buy and sell on OpenSea, right? So yeah, at the core level, you're trusting emblem and our tech stack to protect you. 
but at least you know, like if you sell it on OpenSea, you're going to get paid, right? Or if you buy it on OpenSea, you're going to get it, right? So there are like, you got to choose which one you got to choose, right? And so, you know, there, it's certainly it's, um, there are choices to be made and, and um, I respect both, honestly. Um, but yeah, each individual kind of has to make their own ch choices at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, and I look forward to, uh, you know, the future of emblem vault. I know, uh, trustless bridging has always been kind of a grail in the uh, cryptocurrency space. It's, uh, not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, I haven't really seen any good implementations of it yet. And, you know, even back in like 2017, uh, Truebit did a little bit of, uh, research into, um, uh, the Doge Ethereum bridge to try and bring Dogecoin over to, uh, to ethereum and only able to have one uh, a one-way solution like in order to go the other way they need a hard fork doge to give it an upgrade so it, it, it things will improve over time i'm hopeful for it yeah i mean with just what you mentioned with bridges it's really hard man uh and you know we've seen hacks of bridges and all that sort of stuff and so yeah all that sort of stuff's hard yeah um well even, even with the ordinals and and people wanting to set up um you know, atomic swaps for ordinals, right? Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Why not? It's perfect. Let's do it. And people are like, oh, dude, it's going to be spun up in a day. And I'm like, bro, I don't think so, man. <laughs> like, I know that stuff like that is like really hard. Like even DEXs for counterparty, like are still clunky. And most people don't use them because they're, they're clunky. Right. And uh, yeah, I just know that, that building this stuff, the ideas are great, but, but building stuff that actually works is actually really, really hard to do. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I think, uh, you know, the like even with some of my own projects, we've uh, we've moved from the Bitcoin code base to Ethereum just because the functionality is way, it's way more built for it. Like you can build tons of cool stuff on Ethereum. And as you, as you covered going over the history of the space, people have been experimenting and playing around. And a lot of the solutions are becoming more and more elegant and easy to use compared to like on Bitcoin, everything is a little hacky job. You gotta, you know, trust things. You gotta do this and pretend this and it, it it's never really been easy to do anything cool on Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I know we've tried. We've we've seen a lot of cool examples of the of it over the time over time. But um, yeah, I think uh, you know the future looks bright. I, I know Pork Chop is down there giving the thumbs the thumbs down, bro. But look, I have Counterparty assets. I I use Counterparty wallets. Um, you know, I love Counterparty, and I'm a supporter of it, hundred percent. But at the end of the day, you know, most of us still use like dispensers, right? And dispensers have a front run problem. That's never been fixed. It's not fixed, right? Um, so you can give the thumbs down and be like, that's not right. But at the core, you know, there's a reason why it's still, you know, there's a reason why it's not open C, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a reason why. And unfortunately, right? Um, like I wish it was, but it's not. And it's not from lack of trying. Like J Dog's been working for years, right? Um, it's okay, but it's not great. Um, and great's really hard to do. That's all. That's all. You know, it's not that I don't love Counterparty. It's not that I don't love Bitcoin. Um, it's not that I love Ethereum more than any of those. Um, they're all good, but certainly there's a reason why Ethereum-based NFTs took off, right? And that reason is, in, at my my belief, is that. The core of it was the tech was right and it met the market at the time. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes in the future. Maybe something else changes it. Maybe Bitcoin NFTs just rock it. Uh, who knows? But uh, pork chop. What's up, man? How's it going, guys? Um, you know, I've been here for a minute. And I understand people, people feel that counterparty is difficult or tricky but it's really not. And it is a P2P transfer of, of assets. It, the dispenser is not, you don't give a percentage to counterparty for using the dispenser. You don't give a percentage to counterparty for using a DEX, which is very easy to use. Um, so OpenSea and counterparty are not really comparable in my view. I don't know about you guys, but it's not it's not a thing that it's different. It's not the same and it will never be the same. 
and ordinals are just as difficult, if not a hundred times more difficult and sketchy to deal with right now than anything I've seen. I can't even remember since when. Like, I wouldn't even say colored coin. Like, even that wasn't as risky as this shit. <laughs> this is nuts. <laughs> That's hilarious, bro. So, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, man. This, this is nuts. So, I, I agree with you. And dude, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not shitting on counterparty, like, at all. I'm just saying from a user perspective, um, it, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't hit the user right. And I, I am, I'm with you. It's peer to peer. I love that. Right. I love it. And, and, but it's not, it just, it doesn't meet the market where the market is. That's all I'm saying. And I'm not saying it, it, it's going to die or it's not, you know, it's not good enough. I'm just saying it is what it is um, from, from like a usability perspective. And, you know, I was just trying to frame it in its kind of place in history as far as like usability and why people chose other options. And, you know, sometimes other options include, you know, trusted third parties like OpenSea simply because it allows their kind of functionality, you know, if you will. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that that's perspective enough. Not, not, I'm not, not shitting on it at all. You know what I mean? No, I, I know. It's, uh, it's the shit that I've been hearing people say over the past week. That is just Wait, did, don't you know that Bitcoin nonsense. NFTs are only two weeks old, man? <laughs> yeah, man. They're, they're all brand new. And every freaking platform since Counterparty started their connecting artwork to a token using our tech and our ideas. So to even take a little bit of credit from Counterparty for every other platform having this is ridiculous. So well, well, I, I'm supportive of the, and I've made a bunch of tweets this week, just kind of like, hey guys, there've been, uh, you know, Bitcoin NFTs, you know, since 2016 or whatever, you know, I mean, a bunch of those tweets out. Yeah, and we, we got week. banned from Twitter because we don't call them in it. <laughs> and crypto art was a bad thing for Twitter, so we said, eat, eat a dick, Twitter, and we went to Telegram. <laughs> You know, we will yep. never call these NFTs, but other people will for marketing points and getting yep. to have zero idea what the tech is and zero idea what an ordinal is. But you better FOMO in here and get this. Hurry up, hurry up. You're going to miss it. And just people just getting rugged left and right. It's the funniest thing I have watched in a long time. Um, yeah, I, I remember when uh, I think it was uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh Kevin Rose was saying that, oh, yeah, remember Rare Peppers uh, built on some weird blockchain? <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. I, I had to respond to that tweet. That was like crazy, man. Yeah. It's like, that, but that's where it is, right? It's like even somebody who's act based, biggest project of, you know, one of the big, five biggest projects of 2021 or whatever, like even him doesn't even know like this basic information. There's always such huge holes in all of our information. Um, yeah, it just, he highlighted that, you know, for me, when he, when he put out that tweet, it's like, wow. Um, people really, even the people who we, we take to be like, you know, leaders or educated in the space can massive holes of information. And I think, um, you know, it just comes with time and energy to kind of hopefully patch a little bit of these holes and I'm hopeful that that the ordinals kind of explosion will actually, you know, hopefully plug some of these holes as to like, you know, the history of NFTs. Like, we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. But I hope it's it's an opportunity for for some for us to make an impact into kind of like the collective consciousness of a whole new group of people. And uh, for the record, uh, I definitely like uh, counterparty assets more than ordinals, as long as they have an IPFS link, though. I think that that is kind of a defining feature of them. Um, I agree. That's why I do all mine on IPFS. Um, good. But I am going to make an ordinal out of every piece I've done, and I'm going to connect it back to my token that's on counterparty, so everything will loop together. Um as far as Emblem Vault goes, that is probably one of the coolest texts that's been brought, you know, and I believe it's, you know, Shannon and Desktop Commando are very cool people. I like them very much. 
and they're always there. And it's been a great way to get counterparty assets uh, anywhere else. If you have someone that wants to hold it there and they don't want to hold a Bitcoin wallet for some weird reason, then they can, they can, they, I love the transfer of a, a, a viewing window from one world into another dimension to see your wallet. You know, it's a, it's pretty dope. Very cool stuff. Appreciate that, man. I am not completely understanding exactly how you get an ordinal in there unless it sees it from like Sparrow wallet or something, right? Yeah. All, all, all we're actually doing with the ordinals, you know, so in an emblem vault, you're creating basically creating a Bitcoin wallet in there, a Bitcoin address. And all you're doing is you're sending the ordinal to that address. That's it. Um, but doesn't the ordinal have to be like a SegWit taproot address? Uh, it does, but our, our address, act, the, the wallet address in there actually is the right kind of, a, of address. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. So, so luckily the tech, the tech was right off the bat. Like that was, that was fortunate. Uh, just, that was yeah, that we had quick. the right type of wallet. Yeah. Yeah. You guys were very quick on that. So. Well, it was a lot, a bit of luck, vault. a bit of luck, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like two or three days after Ordinal started, all of a sudden people were putting them in an emblem vault. So I was like, Jesus. Literally, like we didn't even know if the, I, I think a bunch of people had put them in and we didn't even know if the, the tech was the right kind of wallet. And I think we were on a Twitter space with, um, with one of the, you know, guys who's connect DC. And Shannon came on the space and asked him about the type of wallet. And so, yeah, we were very lucky at that, at that point in time. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Very cool. Well, congratulations guys. So there we have it. Uh, we looked deep, deeper into uh, Bitcoin entities. Uh, we discussed Emblem Vault and uh, everything else historical. And so uh, all the story will continue uh, in Tallinn during NFT Tallinn. Uh, I understand that Adam uh, has a, a schedule to attend. Uh, so uh, unless, Adam, you say that you want to stay with us for another 15 minutes, then... Uh, unfortunately, uh, I can't. I actually do have to have to run. Uh, I, got another, I got another meeting I got to run to. Yeah. So uh, thank you for uh, joining with us today. And uh, looking forward to hosting you uh, in uh, Tallinn. Uh, for everyone else, uh, we will be doing more uh, speaker uh, introduction uh, spaces. Next one, uh, most likely already tomorrow, and another 50 or more before uh, the event uh, starts at uh, on May. And so uh, looking forward to hosting you in the next episodes, looking forward to hosting you in Tallinn. And if there's anything uh, you want to share in the meanwhile, please do. Until then, thanks. That's all for today's episode of NFT Talent Talk. I appreciate all of you for tuning in and I hope you'll time in for our next episode. Make sure to subscribe and rate this podcast if you found it valuable. It really helps us out. I encourage you all to visit nfttalent.com to learn more about the event and grab a ticket when you're ready. I promise you the experience in Estonia will be a worthwhile one. Bye-bye.